Um, so what we're going to see today in Isaiah, we're just taking a, a slow walk through the book of Isaiah together over the next year or so. Um, we've made some good progress. We're on chapter 7. We're going to get through the ver- eighth verse of chapter 8 today. Um, and, but what we're seeing here is, is a crisis, a crisis that strikes uh, in Israel and how God addresses that crisis. And so I think this is really going to be a very helpful message for all of us because every one of us deals with a crisis uh, on occasion. We all have faced things that are outside of our ability to control. And um, we've, we've dealt with things that we just don't know what to do with. Some, some of us are dealing with crises that are very, very serious and may take years or even lifetimes to resolve. Some of us face things that are simpler, um, that, that may resolve more quickly. But we all understand that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And that means that things happen in the world that actually uh, throw us off our feet. I'll tell you about one, one quick story from my family. This it's kind of funny now looking back on it. It wasn't funny at the time at all. But um, so my son Jonah, he's our oldest. He's, he's seven. Last year he was six and um, had got the flu, which, you know, not a big deal generally. It's just sort of, it's part of life, right? You get the flu and felt miserable for a few days. Got, uh, you know, everything kind of resolved itself. And we're re- getting ready to send him back to school after a couple days of being, you know, without the fever and all of that. Um, and we were just in the morning, I'm getting lunches put together, doing whatever. And I see him out of the corner of my eye, um, dragging himself with his arms across the floor, like not walking out of his bedroom. And I'm going, that's weird. Okay. What is he doing? He, but he's six, you know, so that's, they're, they're weird. Six-year-olds are weird, right? So I didn't think too much of it. I was like, so what are you doing? And, and he, as casually as if we were talking about the weather, says, oh, yeah, my legs don't work. L- like, just casually. And I just looked at him and I went, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, my legs don't work. It just like we're talking about the, the, the weather. I said, what do you mean your legs don't work? He's like, well, I got out of bed, I stood up and I fell over. <laughs> It's like, okay, so I get over there, and I, of course, I'm like starting to somewhat panic here, but I'm, I'm not sure what's happening. So I, I pick him up, I set him on his feet, I let him go, and he falls straight to the ground, straight to the ground. So Im- immediately, I'm thinking meningitis, uh, I'm thinking something horrible is happening to my son, he can't walk, he could walk yesterday, can't walk today, what's going on? Um, that's, that's funny, because you know that he can walk now, right? You wouldn't be laughing at that if, if he was in a wheelchair today. But he, he, uh, I just started freaking out in my, internally. I didn't want him to freak out, you know? So as a parent, you know how that goes, right? You're just like, everything's like spinning in your head, but you don't want them to worry. So he's just kind of cool and he's acting normal and he's like, yeah, I just can't walk, no big deal. Like, this is my life now kind of thing. Uh, so I set him on the couch and I, I also don't want to tell Crystal anything until I can figure this out, right? Because I'm going, I got to figure something out. Get, I can't just go into the, to the room and go, oh, by the way, our son can't walk anymore. Uh, so I had to figure something out. I, I start Googling because that's what you do when you don't have answers. And uh, I typed in some things. I just typed in like, I didn't even know what to look for. I just typed in like flu 
can't walk or something like that. And, and uh, it took a little bit of searching, a couple pages in, I find this website to a Canadian hospital that has an article about this condition. Apparently it's something that happens. Uh, I don't even remember what it's called now. I'd have to look it up again. But basically, children from generally boys, five to eight, um, after the flu can experience sudden acute loss of leg usage. Um, And it lasts for a few days, and then they bounce back. And so I'm like, okay, well, that's good. I mean, it's good that it potentially isn't a big deal. So I'll just, we'll just wait it out. Um, and like, if it doesn't have, if nothing changes, we'll go to the brain doctor or something or whatever. But uh, thankfully, um, it all worked out. He, he, it was literally like an on and off switch. Like two days later, boom, he could walk again. Like someone turned on a switch. It was very strange. But that led to two days of us kind of just hoping that this was what we thought it was and not something worse. Because the alternative is, I was, you know, as you get into like the spiral of the internet searches, you read all kinds of horrible, terrifying things, right? You're like, it's, not, it's always like if you go on WebMD and type in, like, I have a headache, it's usually you have cancer. That's like the answer that they give you. It's always terrifying to search online for anything uh, medical related. So we're going either he's fine or he's going to be horribly, horribly. Uh, disabled for the rest of his life. So it's one of those two. Great. All right. So we're just in limbo. And, and that, that's where we were. Now, again, that has resolved itself. Everything's good. And I'm thinking, well, that really stunk, though, for a couple of days. Like, you're sitting there going, we're just waiting this out. We just got to wait and see what happens. And, and if you've been there, you know how horrifying that is. Uh, you know how terrible it is that you ha- can't do anything but wait. And, and that's what we're actually going to see here in Isaiah 7. We're going to see this reality strike Israel, and there's nothing they can do but wait and wait on the Lord. So let's, let's get into this. Let's look at verse 1, um, and we'll just read this uh, together here. 1 and uh, 2 set up the, the scene for us. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, against Judah, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. All right, so here's what's happening. This is in in the historical accounts here. This is what's happening. Ahaz is king of Judah. Okay, he's he's in the line of King David's throne. If you don't know your your, uh, Old Testament history, that's okay. I can just basically give you the the bullet point here. Um, After King Solomon died, the, the, the United Kingdom of Israel uh, was split. So you had Israel and you had Judah divide. And so you had a divided kingdom. And now Judah maintained the Davidic throne, the throne of David, and Israel just kind of went off and did their own thing and had their own kings. But um, so there was a civil war of sorts and a division there. And so now, there, now Israel is two nations, Judah and Israel. And uh, Ahaz is the king in Judah. He's David's relative. He's on that line of 
the throne. And what's happening here, if you were following here, um, you have Syria, you have, um, you have this guy named Pekah uh, in Israel, who's the king there. And you've got Ephraim, and all of these things are coming against Judah. They're, they're all creating an alliance to de- defeat Judah in a battle. And when Ahaz hears about this, he is terrified. It says that his heart and the heart of his people shook like trees of the forest before the wind. He's, he's just, he's barely hanging on. He's swaying in the wind. He's terrified. So what is God going to do? That's where, so he's at this point where he has, he, he's just got a lot of bad options and very little uh, good going on. So here's what happens. Verse three, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of those two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Okay, so there's a lot there. But what basically God says um, to to Isaiah, you need to go and you need to go with your son to meet Ahaz. And here's where he's going to be. He's going to be at the, uh, at the upper pool. He's inspecting the water supply or whatever he's doing. You're going to meet him there. And here's the message. The message you give to him is this. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps. He, he's like, I know that you feel like you're trapped here, Ahaz. I know you feel like this is a terrible situation, but you need to just hang in there. Be careful, be quiet, just do what you're told. Basically, he's saying to him, the people who are threatening you are two, he describes them as two smoldering stumps. So basically two burnt up cigarette butts. That's what we're talking about, right? Nothing of real threat. Just burnt up, not really powerful. Um, but, but, you know, from Ahaz's point of view, he's terrified. He's horrified that, that they want to come in and defeat him. And what they want to do, as God says here in, uh, later on in this passage, he says that they want to go up against Judah to terrify it, to conquer it, and set up the son of Tabeel as king. So what's happening is, is that Ahaz is on the throne of David, these, these enemies of his are saying, we don't want him on the throne, so let's go in there, let's kill him, and let's put our own puppet king on the throne. And that's what they, they are planning to do. But then, here's how God reassures Ahaz. In verse 7, he says, it will not stand, and it will not come to pass. It will not come. It will not ha- what you're afraid of, Ahaz, isn't even going to happen. 
you're terrified about something that's not even going to happen. And see, see, here's the thing. God knows what the plan is. God sees the whole thing from beginning to end. We don't, right? We, we can't see from beginning to end perfectly. Or what we're seeing is what's happening in the moment. We've got a very short-sighted view of life. We can predict things, but there's no guarantee our predictions will actually happen. We can look back in what's, what has happened and try to make predictions based off of that. But at the end of the day, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's around the bend. We don't know what may come. But God does. God does. And he's reassuring Ahaz that the plan that you're so terrified of isn't even going to happen. And so then he says to him this, if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. In other words, trust me, Ahaz. Trust that what I am telling you is true and not what you're terrified of seeing come to pass. It's not going to happen. You're worried about nothing. At the end of the day, I've got this under control. See, we, we have to believe... Um, biblically, the, the evidence is certainly there, but just for our own sanity, we have to believe in a sovereign God because God is sovereign. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. He has everything figured out. But that's, it's really hard to trust in a sovereign God when the circumstances of our life don't seem to be going well. It's hard. But that's why we're told, and that's why Ahaz is told, to be firm in faith, to trust, to obey, to to know that God is in control, whatever may come, that it's in his hand, it's his plan, and he will accomplish his purpose. And his purpose is always better than ours. It's always better than ours. And so here's where we're at. He's, He's being reassured. But then God ups the ante a bit here. Look at verse 10. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. This is an amazing statement and one that we would probably all just love to have, right? This is what God's doing. God is giving Ahaz a blank check. He says, you know what? Here's the thing, Ahaz. I know that what I'm telling you doesn't seem like it could happen. Like you're threatened by these people. You're afraid that what they're planning is going to happen. I'm telling you it's not. But just to add, you know, icing to the cake here, as if what I'm telling you isn't enough, I'm going to give you permission to ask me for any sign. Ask me for anything to prove to you what I'm telling you. He says that, right? Verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Ask for proof. Let it be as deep as Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew word for for the underworld, kind of this mythical world underneath, you know, uh, the the world here that we know, or as high as heaven. So it's like, basically he's just making this statement. It can be as high or as low as you want. Whatever it is, ask. Ask. That's an amazing offer. If any of us got that offer, we would take it in a heartbeat and go, wait, 
I can ask you to prove anything to me that, to show that this is real? Okay, I'll do it. Right? Any, any of us would do that, but this is not what Ahaz does. Look at verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. All right, now that sounds noble, but it's actually rebellious. He's, he's, he's framing this disobedience, and that's what it is. He's disobeying the Lord by saying, I will not ask. God said, ask. He didn't say, if you want to ask, you can ask. No, he said, ask. And Isaiah, and, I, and Ahaz rather says, nah, I'd rather not. This is disobedience. This, this is him disregarding the word of the Lord. This is not noble. But he's trying to make it sound noble. So he says, well, I don't want to put the Lord to the test. Which, by the way, is a biblical thing, right? We shouldn't put the Lord to the test. We should trust the Lord. We should let him work his plan out. We don't need to be constantly throwing these things out as like, hey, jump through this hoop and then through this hoop and then this hoop. Like, we don't need to be doing that. But there are times when God permits that, as we see here. And so Ahaz is going, well, I, I'm not going to put you to the test. You're not putting him to the test if he's telling you to do it, right? Like, so, this is, so he's just kind of making this, this excuse to not obey. Verse 13, then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men? that you weary my God also? In, in other words, let's, let's put this into modern English here. He's, Isaiah asks Ahaz, after he refuses God's offer to ask for a sign, um, I, Isaiah basically says, Ahaz, why are you such a little punk? Like, seriously, why are you being such a punk? You are exhausting everyone around you, and now you're exhausting God too. Like, really? Like, you're just, you're just a punk, like, what, what in the world? What's your deal? It's like, isn't it enough that you are so obnoxious to every person around you? Now you have to be obnoxious to God too? That's, this, I mean, Isaiah's got some, he's got some guts, right? I mean, this is the king he's talking to. So he's, he's just going, Look, you're, you're being a fool here. Verse 14, Isaiah continues and says, Therefore, because you're such a little punk and won't ask for a sign when God told you to, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want to ask him for anything, so God's just going to do it anyways. He's going to show you that everything's going to be okay. And here's the sign. It's probably a familiar verse to you if you've been around church, at least at Christmas time. Um, you've probably heard this. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a, is a Hebrew word that means God with us. God with us. It says, He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of, that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. 
In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that's at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that's in the land of Assyria, and they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of all the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bows and arrows, a man will come there, for the land will be briars and thorns. And for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will Come, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where the cattle are let loose and where the sheep tread. Now, there's a lot there, right? We don't need to unpack all of that. Um, But basically what we're seeing here is this, that God is going to offer Ahaz a sign regardless of whether he wants one or not. And here's the sign. Um, That's actually, it's got a double fulfillment, okay? This this is going to be one of those kind of more complex things. There's a fulfillment in the immediate sense, like what he's describing here is, is hey, I'm going to resolve this specific issue that you're facing. That's kind of one side of this. Uh, but there's also a greater fulfillment, an ultimate fulfillment, if you would, um, where one half of this is like a shadow and the other half is the substance. Um, so the, there's, there's a human element in this and then there's a God element in this, in this promise. And, and we're going to see, we'll, we'll just first look at the, the human pr- uh, promise and how that's fulfilled, because that's what we see in the first eight verses of chapter eight. But I really want to then pivot away from that to what this ultimately points to, okay? So let's look at verse eight through, uh, one through eight real quickly, and we'll just see what God's talking about here for the immediate fulfillment or the near, the near future fulfillment for Ahaz. It says, Then the Lord said to me, that's Isaiah, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Meher Shalahashbaz. Don't ask me to say that more than once, but I'm going to have to because it's in here again. Um, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerobekiah, to attest to me. And he says, I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Meher Shahala Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over resin in the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all of his glory, and it will rise over all of its channels, go over its banks. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the necks of its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Okay, now this is... This is really not the emphasis that I want to make, but I'm just telling you what's happening in this paragraph or two is that God is saying, here's, here's the human fulfillment. Isaiah, you're going to have a son. And by the time that son grows up, all of this is going to be resolved. Like we just read a whole lot to get to that point. Okay. 
um, you're going to have this son and, and this boy is going to be, you know, uh, a part of all of this. But that's not really the, the real point of this text. The, that, that's what God did in the historical setting of Israel in that time. But there is a much deeper and more vital meaning in this text. And that's where the New Testament really begins to clear things up. Because when the New Testament quotes Isaiah um, a lot. And, um, and in one particular case, we see how the New Testament understands this passage. So flip over, if you got your Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, we see this passage quoted, or at least one of the verses quoted. Um, we're going to start in verse 18. And this is familiar. We're, you know, we're a couple months away from Christmas here, but um, we're going to read a familiar Christmas passage. And it's not just for Christmas, by the way. It's for, uh, for all of us at all times. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a, man, a just man, unwilling to put him to shame, her to shame, rather, <coughs> resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Fulfill what God had spoken by the prophet. So the word fulfill is important there, right? This is, this is the true meaning and fulfillment of the promise Isaiah made. And he's going to quote this passage we just read. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what we're seeing in this text is something really vital about Jesus. And that is that Jesus came into the world to be the fulfillment of God's promise to be with us. That in, in the midst of our broken and sinful world, God himself enters into our world. He becomes one of his created beings. He lives among us. And he did so not ultimately to just save Ahaz from some military plan, but to ultimately save, to save all of his people from the ultimate enemy, which is our sin. Dave, uh, uh, excuse me, Joseph was told by the angel that his name is going to be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Savior or God saves. And so Jesus becomes here the fulfillment of this text in Isaiah 7. He's the point He's the one that this all points to. It's not ultimately about Ahaz and what Ahaz was dealing with. There was some 
you know, work in that day at that point in time that God was doing? Yes, because God is present at all times and in all, all seasons. But the real meaning of Isaiah 7 is that Jesus would one day come and be for us, our God, with us. If you think about this, um, this story, this Christmas story that we're so familiar with has a lot of parallels to the story that Ahaz was experiencing, although it wasn't a military issue. There was still a crisis, right? Joseph is engaged to this woman that he loves and wants to marry, and he finds out that she is, is pregnant, and he knows it's not th- theirs. He knows that. And so he's like trying to figure out how to get out of this and how to divorce her in a way that doesn't humiliate her or shame her. And, and he's in this crisis. And it's in the midst of that crisis that God comes to him through an angel and says to him, you know what, you don't need to be afraid, Joseph. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what's happening here is be bigger than any of us the Holy Spirit is bringing about our promised Emmanuel, God with us. This is to fulfill what God spoke through the prophet. And when we see Jesus in that lens, we actually see that his whole life on earth was about him being with us in our crisis we see that his whole life was, was meant to point people to the fact that God is among us, that he's with us, that he's for us. We see it in his provision of food for people. We see it in his provision of healing for people. We, we see it through all of these different miracles that he performs. We, we see all of that in his life, ultimately leading to his death on the cross to defeat our ultimate enemy, our crisis of sin that would have separated us from him eternally. We get to see Jesus address it all. There's a, there's a story that you're probably familiar with that I just thought through as we were, um, as I was thinking through this text. Um, and it's a story that, uh, of Jesus bringing his disciples out into a boat um, you know, after doing this whole long day of ministry, and Jesus falls asleep in the boat. And his disciples, many of them were professional fishermen before they took, dropped their nets and followed Jesus. So they were not like un, unfamiliar with sailing. Um, but they get into the middle of the lake, and a storm strikes, a storm that's so big and so powerful that they don't know what to do, and they think they're going to die. These are, these are like big, burly fishermen who are used to this kind of thing, and they're terrified of this storm. And, and you all know the story, and they, they wake Jesus up, and they start freaking out and going, don't you care that we're going to die here, Jesus? And Jesus um, gets up from his nap, and he just says to the storm, he speaks to the wind, and he says, you know, you got to be quiet now. And, and the storm obeys. It stops. And, and that's where 
the disciples start really freaking out because they're thinking, they're first freaking out that he's not doing anything. And then when he does something, they freak out even more. They're just terrified that he has the power to say to the storm, stop, and it stops. And Jesus turns to those, those men, those um, exhausted, wind-torn men, and he says to them, why did you doubt? Why, why would you think that I would bring you out here to let you die and drown in this storm? Jesus proving in that moment that he is God with them. That, that he is with them. He didn't leave them alone to suffer on their own without him. He went with them. He brought them out into the boat knowing, I, I believe, knowing full well that that storm was going to strike. He's God. He knew that. He could have said to his disciples, you know, I know it looks okay right now, but it's going to get a little dicey tonight, so let's hang out here till the morning, and then we'll sail across because it's going to get stormy. No, he didn't do that. He let them go out into the storm. But he, he didn't let them go into the storm without him. And he cared for them. He provided for them what they needed when they needed it. And here's the thing that we, we need to realize. Even though Jesus is not physically present on the earth today, he is still with us. He's with us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That actually Jesus is closer to us than he even was to the disciples while he was on earth. Jesus tells them that when he's preparing, to, or he's preparing them for his eventual death, resurrection, and ascension, he tells them, I'm, I'm about to go into heaven here, and um, when I do, you're going to think that I've abandoned you, but I haven't. I'm actually going to send you th- my, my helper who will be with you and will remind you of all of these things. And that's the benefit that we have as believers in Jesus. We have the presence of God with us literally in every moment in, in our hearts and in our very lives. He has never abandoned us. So I, I know that there's a lot of people in this room who are suffering and struggling and working through things. And I know that because many of you have shared your struggles with me. And I, I know that there are things that are serious going on in your lives. Let me just encourage you. Jesus is your God with you. He's Emmanuel. He is with you. Even when you can't see how it's going to work out, he has a plan and he's working all things to the purpose of his will. He's working all things for your good if you love him. And I know that that's hard to see in the middle of the storm because in the middle of the storm, our reaction, it would be the same as the disciples. Why did you bring us out here to kill us? And that's what it feels like when we're going through a crisis. But that's not the reality. Ahaz believed he would die from this this military coup against him. And God came to reassure him it's not going to happen. He's come even more profoundly to us to reassure us that the crisis of our hearts, the greatest crisis, is already dealt with by him on the cross the crisis of our sin that separates us from him, that's done. That's been dealt with. We don't have to carry the burden of our sin anymore. 
Hallelujah for that. But in the moment-to-moment crises that we face in life, we still need to lean into our God, Emmanuel, who came to be with us and will never leave us and will never forsake us. Let's rest assured in that today. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your great kindness to us this morning. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have come to earth, not just in a moment in time and temporarily, but that you are, that you are still today actively present with us through the Spirit. We pray that our storms would lead us to faith and trust and that they would not lead us to fear. And God, we just ask that you would work in this, in our hearts as you, as you need to today, God. You know where each one of us individually are, what we're dealing with, what our struggles are. I pray, Father, that you would minister to our hearts this morning as you need to do that for us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.